Jamie, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 will be in verses 14 through 41. This is a follow-up to last week when the Holy Spirit was poured out and we believe that there was 120 disciples in the room, men and women, who began to speak in languages they had not learned. And one of the charges lodged against them is that they were drunk. And what you're about to read is the way that Peter uh, corrected that false charge. This is God's word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show you wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he's quoting Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us even to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on his throne, David foresaw when he spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand. Father, unless you call us, unless you open our eyes and give understanding, we will always be learning and never understanding, always seeing but never grasping the gravity of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, I pray for your spirit to bind the enemy, that he would free us from distraction, that he would bless the words of my mouth, and that we would leave here, Lord, as people who celebrate the rescue that we have in Jesus. May you do this for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a young man, his name was Tate Ramsden, and he was a Dartmouth uh, swimmer. And one day in 2015, he drowned. And he drowned swimming in shallow water. And he drowned by what they call shallow water blackout drowning. And he had already swum 4,000 yards. That's, that's 40 football fields. And after swimming that long, he wanted to swim an additional uh, four laps without taking a single breath of air. And what happened is his body made him grasp for air, and he blacked out, and he drowned. Why do swimmers push themselves to that limit? It's because they live in a world of, that's a meritocracy. That you'll do anything to shave time, anything to get faster, anything to get better. And his parents started a campaign against that. It's a meritocracy that if he can shave a minute off or a second off, or if he can get faster with this stroke or go longer, if he can not come up for, for air and, and, and continue swimming, that that maybe, just maybe, he gets to make the Olympics and he gets to get an endorsement and he gets to get his name in the record books. It's the meritocracy, the, the meritocratic way of living where our identity is wrapped up in our accolades and our accomplishments and our works. And isn't, it isn't just true in the swimming pool, it's true on the basketball court, it's true on the football field. It's true in the classroom that those who make the best grades get the best scholarships. Those who make the best grades get into the elite organizations. Those who make the best grades land the best internships. Those who land the best internships land the best jobs. And, and, and it's, it's a cycle. And behind it, 
only exemplary students stand out. Only those who can do the extraordinary make it. And I'm not even proposing an alternate system. I don't even know what, what we would do apart from this, but there's a dark side to this type of living that we create children and, and people who have an extensive and expansive vocabulary. They know words like productive and efficient and exceptional and stellar and phenomenal, but they haven't learned important words like neediness, like grace, like their inability. And I think it's hard to be raised in a culture and, and not project this onto God. And we tacitly begin to think that the Lord loves me because I do X. The Lord accepts me because I do Y. Or my status and standing before him is because I've done Z. Is his kingdom a meritocracy? Is there pressure from him upon you to earn your way into heaven? Is there pressure upon him to do these things, to stand out so that he looks at you and he smiles and welcomes you? Or is his kingdom upside down? This passage is going to remind us that his kingdom is not a meritocracy, at least not in the sense of the world that what we're going to see is that it's possible for the most devout and religious to still need divine rescue. And the rescued, on the contrary, are those who know their guilt and their weakness, who trust in the work of another. There's a better way to live, and this passage lays it out for us. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of show you one, that the devout and the religious, they need rescue. And I want to answer the question, how are the devout and the religious rescued? And then I want us to know, all right, how do we know when the devout and the religious have been rescued? First thing, I want to show you that the devout and the religious still need rescue. Last week, I mentioned that, that all of the events that are taking place in, in Acts chapter 2 are happening in a special city, and that city is Jerusalem, and it's happening during a special time of year, during the Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days after Passover. And the, the, the city of Jerusalem is very diverse. I mean, we know, for example, that, that Philip is going to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who travels from eastern Africa north to Jerusalem, we know that when Jesus was going to a cross that a Cyrenian uh, carried his cross. We know from Josephus that, that during these holy days of Israel that the Romans would deploy more troops to the city of Jerusalem because of the amount of pilgrims who would literally storm the city for these holy days, right? We know that there are money changers and those who barter and trade and sell goods and, and, and animals. And so we know that Jerusalem during this time of year is very diverse. 
And yet when you look at this particular passage and the particular audience that, that Peter is preaching this sermon to, that, 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 that his audience is the religious people. It's the devout. You'll notice right there in verse 5, he says it plainly, right? He says uh, in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2, it says that now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You get down in verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, right? Who are proselytes? We don't, we don't use that term a lot, do we? If you were a non-Jew and you embraced Judaism, you were called a proselyte. And it meant that you were following the one true God. And so you had to submit yourself to Jewish circumcision. And you also had to go through a ritual cleansing where you were immersed. And so, so we're told by, by Luke that, that proselytes and Jews were there. Now look at verse 14, when, when Peter begins to address the crowd, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, you see it also in, in verse 22, where Peter clearly says, men of Israel. You see it in verse 29 when he calls them brothers. You see it in verse 36 where he says, let the house of Israel know. His audience it's the devout. It's the people who will make a pilgrimage from Rome, from Rome to Jerusalem. It's those who know God's word. It's those who he quotes David twice. He quotes Joel, but he's quoting it to people who would know David and who would know the book of Joel. And then notice what he says right down there in verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You see the juxtaposition? They're devout. They're pilgrims. They're in God's city. And yet he calls them crooked. That word for crooked, it's where we get our English word scoliosis from. It's a curvature of the spine. They should be standing upright. They should be holy. They give the illusion of uprightness and Peter says, this generation is crooked. Demographers who study uh, people will often lump us into generational categories. You have the GI generation, the silent generation, the baby boomers, generation X, millennials, generation Z. And what demographers will do is to say, okay, th these are distinct people, groups within our country born during this particular time. And what they'll do is study. They'll say, okay, this generation tends to vote this way, or this generation tends to stay with one company this long, and this generation has a pension, and this generation spends this much time on social media, and this generation has this much debt. That what demographers do is they study trends within people who are born within a, a bounded set. And, and here's what Peter does. Peter exegetes the generation of his day, and what he says is that we're crooked. And this is the same language that Jesus used in Luke chapter 9. It's akin to what Moses says about that generation 
who rebelled against God in Deuteronomy 32 that they're crooked and perverse. And so they give the impression of being straight. They're religious, they keep the law, they make the feast, they're circumcised, they know the Torah. We would look at them and say, you're holy. And Peter says, you're not. They need to be rescued. How How does this happen? Because I think we tend to measure crookedness one way, where we're deviating from the law. But like the two sons in Luke 15, there's another way. We're not just crooked, deviating from the law. We can be crooked not with reckless living, but in our self-righteous living. We assume that the relationship we have with God is based on our works and our externals. We make feasts. We know Torah. We abstain from food. We do all of these things, and we think that this commends us to God. And Jesus says that you can do all of this and our hearts can be far from him. We can attend church and we can preach. We can sing hymns. We can play music. We can read our Bibles. We can even avoid sin and still not be near God. If we go down this path of performance, we will be blinded by our quest for being better. Which moves us to the second question. How then are the devout and the religious rescued? That they're devout, but they're dead. They're religious, but their standing before God is still wrong. That's why Luke tells us at the end of Peter's sermon that on that day, 3,000 were saved. What? On that day, 3,000 religious people were saved? That's the oxymoron of the entire passage. That the religious were actually rescued. Now, how were they rescued? When they saw the pouring out of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues, some were amazed, some were perplexed, but some even thought they were drunk. But I think these three phrases categorize where they are. They heard, but they didn't listen. They watched, but they didn't truly see. They knew, but they didn't fully understand. Peter appeals to Scripture that they would have known. And he quotes Joel, and Joel says, these are all things God himself said, I will do. And what Peter says, God has done it. God says, I will pour out my spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. I will show you wonders in heaven and signs below. Peter says, this Jesus of Nazareth, he was attested to you all by God with mighty works, with wonders, and with signs that God did through him in your midst, which you yourselves know. 
Like the language, what Peter is saying is that God has done it. He's told you he would do it in the scriptures that you know. He's done it and you saw it. You, you didn't see it though. Well, how then will they be rescued? God will have to do it. God will have to do it. You see it in verse 39. Look at it with me. For the promise is for you and for your children. So that, that's the scope. And for all who far off, everyone. So the, the scope is, it, 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 of the promise is broad. That God wants to save families and, and men and women and children. And then all who are far off, not just here under the hearing of my voice, but, but everyone. And then notice the end of the sentence. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see that? If he doesn't call, we won't come. We can journey to Jerusalem, but we cannot journey to salvation. And what Peter emphasizes in this passage, he said, God has to do the calling. God has to do the rescuing. God has to do the saving. Now, how does God do it in our text? He does it two ways, and I'll expound on each. First, he does it as they are carrying out their religious rhythms and rituals and in the rule-keeping. And he does it through corrective, Christ-honoring preaching. Those two things, that, that's how God calls out to the religious people, and, and it's how he saves them. First, it's through them carrying out the rituals. Now, this is not always the case. Later on in Acts 17, Paul's going to go to Athens, and he's going to be talking to some heathens. And God is not going to use Jewish rituals to save them. God's going to meet them right where they are and rescue them. But for those who are pursuing a righteousness according to the works of the law, notice how beautiful and gracious God is. God says, bloop, this day while you're in my city attending to my feast, I'm going to rescue you with my word, the word that you've read a hundred times. It's when they're practicing their devotion. It's like Luke 15, the, the, the younger brother, he hits rock bottom chasing pleasures of the world. But this passage isn't that. He meets them in the middle of their religiosity. He says, today the scales will fall off. Today, your eyes will see. Today, your hearts will believe. And then he rescues them through the foolishness of preaching. You got to understand what triggers this sermon. It is a correction of what happened in verse 13. They assume and ascribe the speaking of tongues as these folks are drunk. And so Peter's whole sermon is to correct 
what they are seeing incorrectly. In in other words, Peter doesn't just kind of make up advice. No, he reasons from the book of Joel. He reasons from Psalm 16. He reasons from 2 Samuel 7. He reasons from Psalm 110, and he brings all of that to bear to correct the erroneous seeing right then and there. He uses the foolishness of preaching. What does this mean for us? One, your law keeping will never rescue you. You'll never be good enough. And I really want our youngest to hear this. You won't. The world will tell you, you need to be this pretty, or you need to be this gifted, or you need to have this GPA, or you need to be this smart. And you will begin to construct a worldview that tells you that that is how God sees you. And that is not true. You can never measure up to his holy standards. And you don't have to. Another has done it for you. A few weeks ago, I was on a Zoom call, and um, it's, a, it's a group of about eight of us. We were all doing RUF together, and we all left around the same time. And so once a year, we get together for encouragement and planning and just friendship and learning. And uh, Tim Keller was our kind of morning speaker. And the topic, after we checked in on him and kind of how he was doing, the topic was confessions and catechisms. And I'm not going to lie. I'm like, really? That's what we're... Anyway, and so Dr. Keller begins to talk about the importance of our confessions. He says, look, they don't just summarize our theology, he says, they inoculate you and your people from the thinking of this world. You catch that? So if you read our confessions, they're summarizing doctrine, but what they're also doing is inoculating you from the thinking of the world. The world around us is a meritocracy. And what confessions will remind us is that your God is not. And that's the reason why I selected these particular parts of the confession this morning. And it's there for you to inoculate yourself from this world. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to do this, but we constantly break it in thought and in word and in deed. Well, what then is the purpose of the law that we may know his holy nature and his will and that it would reveal our sinful nature and our disobedience, and thus it would drive us to a need for a Savior. And once we are saved, the law teaches us and it exhorts us how to live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, what then is idolatry? It's trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope, 
our happiness, our significance, and our security. And here's what you have to bring to bear on this passage. What brought them security? What brought them hope? Their idol was themselves and their goodness. They made an idol out of themselves and their righteousness. And here's the thing. I think in our, we know that we're guilty. Like in thought, do you know the thoughts that seep into our minds? Our words? The words that we utter, not when we're around Christian people that we need to impress. Our deeds? That we know we're guilty. And what we'll do is we'll numb and we'll minimize and we'll justify. And as you begin to do that dangerous cycle of numbing and minimizing, you know what you do? Brene Brown says this. She says that in my learning that there is no such thing as selective numbing, that when you numb what is dark, you numb the light as well. And that's true. When we numb the darkness in our hearts, when we justify it or minimize it, that what we're doing on the other side is belittling grace and belittling mercy. But praise be to God that he calls out. He breaks in. He penetrates the darkness of our hearts and he calls us to himself and he uses the rhythms and the rituals that he himself has appointed. He uses the church. He uses the sacrament. He uses your prayers. He uses our singing. He uses the word. In other words, that we could sing this hymn a hundred times and then one day when you sing it, you sing it like you believe it. You can read this Bible a hundred times, and then one day this passage that you've read a hundred times, the light kind of breaks in. This is the way that God moves and he works. He uses his means. And it also means that if you have kids in the home, don't jettison these disciplines. They may not be with the Lord. They may not know him right now. But you don't stop praying. And you don't stop reading. And you don't stop asking them about their souls and where they are with the Lord. I was a fifth year sing senior in college. And my mom and dad called. We're going to the cove to the Billy Graham Training Center, and we're gonna hear Tony Evans preach. I'm grown. What you mean you gonna make me go hear somebody preach? 
And my mama got my sister from Mississippi State and drove to Huntsville, Alabama, put me and my brother in the car, and we drove to Asheville, and we sat under his preaching the whole weekend, and we hated it because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we came home, I don't care what you did on Saturday night, you heard this knock on the door on Sunday morning, it's time to get dressed and go to church. And my mama would not have put it in these words, this is the means of grace, this is how God, she, she didn't have that vocabulary. What she knew was this, you're in my house and you're my son and I can't make you drink the living water, but I'm going to take you to the well. God has to awaken thirst, but I'm taking you to the well. I encourage you, parents, especially with older children, don't stop. You see, the promise is for you and your household. Hold to it. God calls out through rhythms and rituals that he's put down in his word. And it also means that those of us who teach and preach May we grasp the beauty of that calling. It's not eloquence. It's the foolishness of stumbling through family devotion. It's the foolishness of preaching that God calls out. Our last point, how do we know when the religious have been rescued? I love the way that Luke tells us that 3,000 were saved and baptized that day. How do we know? Two things. One, there's a clear understanding of who we're saved by. You'll notice in Peter's sermon that with the exception of verse 29, but even in 29, there's a comparison being made. He's paving the way for Jesus, that every verse is about Jesus. Every single verse is about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, verse 22. This Jesus, verse 23. God raised him up, verse 24. David says concerning him, verses 25 through 28. Verse 30, one of his descendants will sit on the throne. Verse 31, the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus. In other words, what Peter is doing is putting forth the rescuer. And it's not you or I. The rescuer here is Christ. And if you follow, follow Peter's logic, that he's saying that, man, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and we are now moving into these last days. And, and, and what, what, what moves the redemptive clock from the former to the latter days? It's the person and the work of Jesus. And so Peter highlights four different aspects of Jesus here. One is miracles. That his mighty works, his signs, and his wonders 
This is shorthand for all the miraculous things that Jesus did that the Father attested through him that he really did walk the earth. He really did was he really was conceived by the spirit born of a virgin. He really did raise the dead. He really did heal the sick. He really did give sight to the blind. He really did feed the multitudes. He really did disappear when they tried to push him off of a cliff. He just kind of phased through them. He really did all of these things. So what Peter is doing is, is validating that we saw these things. We, we were with him and you saw him and you heard about him. He's not an ordinary man. And what did your generation do? You killed him. Now, this was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, but you, you, you killed him. You let a murderer go and you killed the author of life. And then there's resurrection. The cords of death that entangled him were cut because it wasn't possible for him to be held by them. Now, now why? Because death is not arbitrary. Death is a payment for sin. It's the penalty that God assigned for our rebellion. We die because we're sinners. Well, why then did Jesus die? Was he guilty of sin? No, he died as a substitute for us in our place. But because he was sinless, it would be a gross inconsistency for God to leave him dead. That is why Peter says it's impossible for death to hold him. So God raised him from the dead. And the evidence that Peter starts to layer is bountiful. Second Samuel 7 says that David will have a son who is always on the throne. He quotes sec, uh, uh, Psalm 16, that, 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 that psalm, that beautiful psalm that, that Peter says that David wrote that, but he wrote more than he knew that I can envision Jesus himself saying these words. Can't you? Look at, look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, now put Jesus there as Jesus is about to die on the cross that Jesus says, I saw the Lord always before me. The Lord himself, my God, is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, even though I am about to expire and suffer your wrath, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh, Father, will always dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let me see corruption for you have made known to me the past of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That what Peter is saying is that when David wrote this, he could not have been talking about himself. Peter says, David's tomb is still over there. We, we see it right now. Who was David talking about? David was talking to us about Jesus. Jesus. And therefore the Lord raised this Jesus up. The sacrifice had been paid. The substitute satisfied. Punishment given. And the Lord raised him up. And then the father gets to speak to Jesus in verse 34. The 
father says, David's Lord said to my Lord, son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And what Peter says, that's happening. Jesus is now ascended and is seated at the right hand and evidence of God accepting his atoning work is the pouring out of the Spirit. That ye, we will know when we've been rescued, when we know who the rescuer is. It's not us, it's Him. And we'll know we're rescued when we respond to this rescuer the right way. Peter says they were cut to the heart. Why? Because they killed the author of life. They killed him. And Peter tells them, when they ask him, what do we do? What do we do? He doesn't say try harder. He says, repent and receive this word and be baptized. It's that simple. Turn from your striving. Turn from your trusting in self. Turn from trying to earn. Grieve because you're caught red-handed. You're guilty, but receive this gospel freely and be baptized, which would have been a profound statement. Because for Jews, those who get baptized are proselytes. And what Peter says to them, you too need to be born again. This is a sign and a seal of your new relationship with the Lord. So here's the question that I want to put before us this morning. Have you been rescued? Or are you striving? Have you been rescued? Or are you resting? Have you come to rest in the finished work of Jesus? Shailene has a song, and it's entitled, Were You There? Here are some of the words. While Jesus is being treated foul, he sees Peter's denial. He sent to Pilate, to Herod, and back to Pilate, the violence of humanity at its finest. So now he stands before the crowd doomed to die, an angry mob yelling out, crucify. The way we treat the Lord of glory is debased and it's foul. Ashamed, I see my face in the crowd. When you look at what they did to Jesus, do you see you in the crowd? Do you see blood on your hands for your guilt, for your sin, for your iniquity? If you do, 
and you've bowed in faith, your Father says, grace to you. You're forgiven. You're pardoned. You're cleansed. No striving. I rescue you through my Son. Religion tells us what we must do. Jesus tells us it's done. Religion tells us to work our way up. Christianity says, no, Jesus will come down. Religion tells you to work for your salvation. Jesus tells you God will work for you. Religion tells you to try harder. Jesus tells us to rest deeper. Meritocratic living says I am loved because I perform. The gospel tells you that you are accepted when you realize you can't. May we rest in the divine rescue of Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I pray that you will work through your servant. I pray that your words would pierce all of our hearts, that we would see our need, and that we would be able to repent and turn and rest, that we would stop our striving, and that we would enjoy this great salvation that is ours. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.